Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. You can find this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. In this and future podcasts, I sit down with leaders who are shaping the future of higher education in America and beyond. We dive into the challenges and opportunities facing higher education and explore policies and practices that show promise of a brighter future. I hope that you will find these conversations stimulating and thought-provoking, and if you do, please subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Again, I'm your host, Georgia State President Mark Becker, and today my guest is Kamal Bob, the founding senior director of the Constellation Center for, Center for Equity and Computing at Georgia Tech. He, however, also holds a second title as the global lead for diversity and strategy and research at Google. Uh, Kamal, you're a nationally recognized leader in um, access to STEM, higher education, particularly around computer science. But you're a man that wears two hats, one at Georgia Tech, Center for um, Access to Equity and Computing, and then the diversity strategy and research lead for Google. So how do you wear two hats at the same time, and what is it that you actually do? <laughs> well, first, I'm a child of immigrants, so having multiple jobs comes naturally. Uh, but thank you for having me. I think... Um, these two things, they're, they're complementary to each other. Mm -hmm. So the Constellation Center for Equity at Georgia Tech is a brainchild of the previous president, Peterson, mm -hmm. and the current dean, Charles Isbell, mm -hmm. and I worked uh, on that together. And the intention was to uh, reconsider the responsibility of Georgia Tech as a public institution, mm -hmm. I think, which resonates with you clearly. Yep. So part of that was to expand the resources and the capacity that we had for computing education, in part because we're central to the technical infrastructure for education in the city, but also nationally. So our hypothesis there was that we need to make a structural adjustment, uh, the extent to which um, coding programs and STEM programs and so on for exposure, they're necessary but insufficient. We mm -hmm. felt that, particularly in Atlanta, students needed to have formal, rigorous computing education. Mm -hmm. So that was what we intended to do. So then along came Google, <coughs> and they were interested in similar challenges, obviously at Google scale. There is a, a national crisis uh, with the production of faculty, particularly for computing and computing-related mm -hmm. subjects. Because the tech industry is um, a, to be a bit crass is cannibalizing the faculty that otherwise, right. or the graduates that otherwise would be faculty, there's a crisis there. So there too, there are questions about the expansion of capacity in the formal setting. In the Google's world, it has more to do with higher ed. Uh, in Georgia Tech's world, it has to do with secondary ed education. So they work very well together. I've been quite fortunate insofar as that my role at Georgia Tech is limited, obviously. But uh, I think in the Google space, mm -hmm. I think it's been acknowledged that my relationship to Georgia Tech is helpful for the insights that we need to be able to do the things that we do at Google. Do you ever get confused about which hat you're wearing when you're, say, in a meeting, whether it's with somebody like me or somebody, you know, with um, ac other academics in, sure. in this space? <laughs> I don't, actually. I, um, I think that matters more to people who work in the respective institutions right. than it does to me. My mission has more to do with fairness, uh, justice, uh, the access to the kind of education that makes people viable. So I have a singular focus on that. The institutions are kind of second, that, second to that to me. So I think it's helpful because I, um, I don't lose sight of that. And I think to some extent it's an advantage to both. 
And, I, and I'd like to dive a little deeper there. So I know that um, in some of your thinking and writing, you've talked about access to STEM, access to power. So, you know, you, you come at uh, your work having trained yourself as in mechanical engineering at Cal, um, Cal Berkeley um, and then making the switch to science and technology policy of your Ph.D. at Georgia Tech. Um, focus on STEM, real focus on CS. Um, why CS um, and how do you make this connection from access to STEM to access to power? Well, as a subject, I think, uh, as you point out, I studied experimental solid mechanics through my master's, um, and then I ended up meeting some guys who were solid mechanicians, but were also working at the in the then Office of Science Technology Policy under Arnie Bienenstock, uh, who was the science advisor at the time to Clinton. Uh, and what became clear is that in order to have um, seats at the decision-making power tables yep. for regions and nations, those kinds of skills were disproportionately overrepresented. Mm -hmm. And so it felt to me important that the relationship between the kinds of training that you get, I think in the larger uh, zeitgeist, people with those skills are more revered, mm -hmm. at least in the United States at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not celebrated in the ways that celebrities are. Yep. But I think in the context of people who are making decisions about power and where it lies, when you have those kinds of skills, people respect them. I think it, it rests on the probably distinctly American notion that science is hard and math is hard and people yeah. say that I can't do math. Like they don't say that in other places. So if you can do it here, then people respect you. And then finally, I think the relationship between STEM as an educational platform and power, mm -hmm. uh, I think it sits in right now we're at an inflection point where the tech infrastructure and the tech ecosystem, the future of Atlanta, for example, as you well know and are helping me understand, is going into a space where the economic engines are derived and powered through technical structures. Every company CEO will tell you they're a tech company. Exactly. Whether it's Home Depot or whether right. it's First Data Corporation, right. they're tech bank companies. Or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, so... Part of that that's particular to Atlanta, mm -hmm. I think, is if we're, if we're, thought, if we're talking about who is going to be viable right. in the future of the city, then if we don't have equitable access to these skills, then the, the differentiation and the kind of bifurcation of power is going to be something that we might not be able to reverse. Well, yeah, as you well know, Atlanta is a city with great disparities, one of the most greatest, some of the greatest disparities in the country sure. among the major urban centers. <coughs> so this is near and dear to, you know, what you're doing and what we're doing at Georgia State. Well, yes. So we can put some, let's use some real terms. Yep. I think one of the challenges uh, is that the centrality of race of all of this mm -hmm. has to be said uh, and named explicitly, I think. The Atlanta, as you know, is it's one of the most segregated cities in America. So it's heralded as being a very diverse place. So a lot of the arguments that the companies that are using to come here to justify their location here right. is based on the diversity that they expect right. to find. But often, while those things are true, they're incomplete stories. Yep. They're not telling about the, the degree the profound degree of segregation that we have. In the Atlanta public schools, for example, there are about 10 regular public high schools, right. and seven of them have virtually no white students at all. Right. 
and the thousand plus fifteen hundred or so that we do have all attend three schools. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that those schools represent the higher order courses, the higher order classes right. in international baccalaureate, advanced placement, honors courses, etc., those students are disproportionately have access to that. And what that portends is you'll have a future of a city where the black population is used to justify the economic growth that we want to see, but don't get to participate in it. Exactly. And so that's where the access to STEM becomes part of the access to power. It's a direct link. Right. And so in your experience with the Atlanta Public Schools, so at the Constellation Center, you're working directly with schools on curriculum or advanced placement courses? Yeah. So there, like I said, the hypothesis of our center is that structure is the variable that we're after. So I recognize the importance of informal learning and informal spaces, but our hypothesis is that in order for people to be viable to come to Georgia State, for example, or Georgia Tech and sustain themselves and be successful, they have to have it formally in their uh, school. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to, um, the problem statement that we have articulated is that the, the deployment of computer science education at the secondary school level is one where there aren't sufficient teachers who have the capability to do it, notwithstanding mm-hmm. their interests. Right. And so therefore, we're trying to relieve the subject matter expertise from those teachers, provide that in an online platform, mm-hmm. but they have to be expert and adept facilitators of the instruction itself, particularly, as you well know, for students who don't have the preparatory privilege of being yep. confident in these areas, they have to have a person to hold them and make them believe that yep. they can do it and instruct them in ways that doing it entirely virtually won't work. Well, that's actually back to the future for me. So I, I grew up in a small town in Maryland, and, and we had calculus, but we didn't have a teacher who could teach calculus. So the teacher had these videos from, um, from the state of Maryland. We would watch the videos, and then the teacher would facilitate the conversation. Right. So right. it's a, a, a 21st century incarnation of that, that <laughs> right. approach. But, it, but it's, it seems to continue to be, you know, or it has been for a long time, this lack of capacity to have faculty at the high school level and even probably at the junior high school level ready to teach what I'll call the basics, you know, whether it be algebra or introduction to coding. Because if you don't get the basics, you're not going to get the PhDs. You're not going to be a professor. You're not going to get a seat at the table, as, as you mentioned. Well, I agree. And I also think that we, we should put it in some larger context, yeah. as you uh, listed some of the colleagues that you've had yeah. discussing here. If we think critically about public education in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's the kind of problem that can lead you to paralysis. However, it does need to be stated, for example, that at last year, nearly 10 states had strikes mm-hmm. where the public school teachers themselves were vying for living wages. And so if you think about who the populations of people are in the professional education space that are singularly responsible for the education of students, and those are the very ones that are the most pressurized just to live. And then on top of that, we're asking them to bear the cognitive burden of taking on a subject that they haven't been trained to deliver. It just, the logic doesn't hold. And then what that does, if we're thinking about it as a national problem, mm-hmm. all of those students who are in schools that are struggling, that are in states where the teachers are on strike, or parts of the school districts where the teachers are underserved and underpaid, and mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, those are the ones that serve the most vulnerable students. I mean, it's always been the case. Yep. So then as a national um, structure, then the privilege aggregates itself. Right. And then the concentration in the urban centers of the students who are most able, most privileged, right. most have access to these kinds of skills, the power coincides, it coincides with them. Right. 
uh, and then we kind of have a split country. Well, and I think we, we split not only is that happening in urban areas, the same thing's happening in the rural areas. Oh, absolutely. So if you're disenfranchised, you don't have access. Right. And if you don't get the access to the education, that is literally the path to get the seat at the table. Right. Um, yeah, it's not the decks against you, it's that you didn't get any cards at all. Right. <laughs> right. So. And the rural part of the problem, mm-hmm. I, I, and I, I have to fully admit, mm-hmm. like I'm not as engaged in that part of the problem mm-hmm. just by bias of location. Right. I'm, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, right. I'm a city, all that. So but, you know, when I first saw two trees, I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that the, the technical solutions to those um, distributed problems right we have to be more engaged in trying to determine that because there's se- no way. But it seems that the work you're doing at the, at the Constellation Center, if you will, is, is a project that could be scaled, uh, not only to other cities, but to rural areas, to all states. It, 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 yeah, the yeah. idea is, that, is to have you know, the highest quality content be, that could be provided um, in the schools sure. to, so that students... Uh, you know, already. I think the the other part, I guess, is the is the harder question is have have you worked on cracking the nut of just getting students interested in taking this material? Because you know, that's challenge number one is getting people to actually think that taking math or computer science, which are your your founda- foundational blocks for the, you know a lot of these future jobs, um, that may not be cool. You're right, and it's uh, well, it is cool. I think that there's. Um, I think there's a lot more interest among all demographics of students than we might presume. Mm-hmm. I think it's reflected to some extent in the burgeoning enrollments in undergraduate CS education. Yep. I mean, the, yes, the we're certainly seeing that. Exactly. Absolutely. Yep. So that's indicative, I think, of the success of the last decade of the, the corporate, se- the tech sector mm-hmm. itself and its success. Right. But also all of these programs that are trying to engage girls, engage students of color, right. engage mm-hmm. kids. The, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons. Yep. Yep. And even NSF in the public sector, I used yep. to be a that was program your, officer there as well. Jobs, yeah. uh, so that, I think, has all been successful. But the challenge, though, is that the, the distinction between the engagement programs that are focused on coding and um, kind of robotics and things right. of that, where it's, it's highly engaging. Right. First it's Lego, first robotics. Exactly. Yep. Those have been remarkably successful. Yep. But then when you translate that into school, where you actually have to sit down and take a class, yep. At the end of which you have to go through APCSA or APCS uh, mm-hmm. principles or advanced mm-hmm. placement compu- uh, calculus, etc. Yeah. The rigor associated with that is not nearly as, su- as sexy. Okay. So cracking that nut, of course, is not easy. But that's where I think the relationship between the inertia of of success and what it means and trying to close the gap between the idea that mathematics and science and computing are somehow these unwieldy difficult yeah. things. Uh, that's a cultural uh, objective that I think all of us have to tackle together. Well, and to me, the best answer to that is it's going to seem a little bit of a stretch, but people will tell you that a really difficult language to learn is Chinese. But as um, somebody once said, everyone born in China figures it out. <laughs> you know, that nothing is beyond the human capacity. Sure. If, the, if, if provided with the right environment, you can learn it. If people can learn to read a language that's based on thousands of characters and four tones, sure. uh, people can learn to do algebra and program computers, but the environment has to be right. Mm-hmm. And the, the mindset has to be right. The mindset is you are going to learn this um, and that because it's going to be useful to you. You're going to experience it. You're going to engage with the material. So, But I think along those lines, it will be important to say the following. I think that um, in Atlanta, since we're discussing this, sure. and given the role that you have, yeah. which I think... Uh, 
so I've also said, and I'm not trying to be gratuitous here at all, but I think that Georgia State is one of the most singularly important in higher ed institutions in the Southeast because it changes students' trajectory. Right. <laughs> uh, and I'm not at all being gratuitous, no, but what I'm, what I'm saying, though, is that the, because of the, the, the nature of Atlanta, one of the things that I think we have to address directly mm -hmm. is calling out the bifurcated nature of the system that we have. Right. So those students who are in those seven schools, for example, that are all black, right. they're in communities that are all black, right. the expectations about them are associated with the fact that they are all black students. Mm -hmm. And those things, by definition, have kind of evolved out of the Southern narrative. So these students are not as equally yoked. They're not as equally capable. They don't have the same aspirations. They're not quite as ambitious. They're advised into courses that are around the Votech space. Right. And yep. that has its own, and I'm not disparaging Votech at all, vocational education. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the patterns reveal the attitudes that people have. Right. And so now that we're seeing the gentrification processes underway mm -hmm. fast in Atlanta, right. it correlates with what students are being pushed into. And so to that extent, I think when we're talking about the, the leadership in higher education, part of the responsibilities that we have is to make sure that we, we, don't, we don't exacerbate that narrative right. ourselves. And I think that that's central to part of our responsibility. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's probably where we should end this. But um, I think this is a first conversation, and I hope that you'll come back in the future and we'll have subsequent conversations. I love it. I love it. It's been a real pleasure. Indeed. Likewise. Well, this has been Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. And you've been listening to a conversation with Kamal Bob, founding senior director of the Constellation Center for Equity and Computing at Georgia Tech, as well as the global lead for diversity strategy and research at Google. To hear future conversations with leaders who are shaping the future of higher education, you will find Conversations with Mark Becker wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening, and remember to subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes.